The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. Uh, we're continuing our expositional journey through Titus, and uh, expository just means we're kind of taking it verse by verse. We're just going through the whole book. That's what expository uh, preaching is. And so uh, we're taking a journey through Titus. Uh, last week, we dealt with some background on the book, laid a little bit of foundation. Uh, this book is actually a letter from Paul to Titus and is commonly referred to as a pastoral epistle which makes sense as you begin to see the instructions that are contained within it. Uh, We also took time to talk about why it is beneficial for all of us to study a pastoral epistle, even if we ourselves are not pastors or don't feel called to be pastors. I gave you three things last week, but I'm going to do it again because uh, I think humans in general are not very amped on being told the what if there's not a why. And so I want you to understand as we go into this book that there's a reason for those of us that may not be... uh, called the pastoral ministry to really care about what Paul had to say to Titus, okay? So three things I'll give you. First of all is that it's clear from Paul's opening in this letter that he knew this letter was not just going to be read by Titus as a personal communication, but that it would be read to uh, all of the churches there in Crete. You see how he starts the letter. He says, uh, I'm Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. And so what we know because of, we know roughly when this was written in between First and Second Timothy, we know that uh, Titus and Paul had already had a lot of interaction. They'd already done ministry together. Paul did not need to give this greeting and qualification of why he has the authority to write this letter to Titus, okay? So he knew that Titus was going to take this, read this for other Christians, and they needed to know, why should I listen to what this guy has to say? Well, he says, hi, I'm Paul. I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus, first of all. So listen up, right? That's kind of what he's saying there. He says, I'm an apostle, so listen up, all right? So that's, that's what he's doing there, and that's not for Titus' sake. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That would include this letter from Paul to Titus, and uh, so we believe it's valuable. Uh, thirdly, uh, I told you last week that pastors and teachers do have a higher level of accountability, according to James 3.1. Uh, And Hebrews 13 says that spiritual leaders watch over the souls of the flock of God as ones who will give an account, okay? It also says that if they are faithfully serving Jesus, that that everybody that's a part of the flock of God should seek to imitate the example of godly leaders. And so whatever recommendations, whatever commands we see Paul giving to Titus here about his conduct, the way he lives his life, the way he conducts himself, his missional kind of outlook on... um, what it is he should be doing with his life and every breath, really, we can take that to heart, all of us, whether we're a pastor or not. And I think the way I said it last week is if you ever find yourself letting yourself off the hook, I know that was too many yourselves in one sentence, but um, if you find yourself doing that, saying, well, I'm, I can do this or I can not do this, I'm not a leader in the church, you've probably derailed, okay? You've probably gone out into a zone that you don't want to be in because the reality is... Um, Pastors and teachers will have to answer not only for themselves, but also for the flock of God entrusted to them by King Jesus, the chief shepherd, but they will, so they will also answer for them. Um, but the reality is the, 
the, the qualifications the, the, uh, to be missional and to care about the gospel mission, but also to live your life to the standard of godliness is really no less for every believer, okay? Uh, we should seek to follow the example of leaders that do a good job. So I'm going to read for you uh, a long, long stretch of scriptures here, and then uh, we're going to start in verse 5, and then we'll get going. So I'm in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. It says, For this reason... I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. I actually misled you. That's the only verse I'm going to read because it's going to take me the rest of the night to unpack that verse. So buckle up. Here we go. It's going to be fun. Um, it's going to be a bit different than normal. Uh, when you take a book of the Bible verse by verse, sometimes it brings you to subjects that require careful consideration as they are taught. We should always handle the Word of God with care, uh, but... Sometimes things really take a lot of effort to unpack. Um, here in Titus 1, verse 5, Paul tells Titus to set things in order and to appoint elders in every city. Uh, and it's going to take the rest of the time we have here, uh, and hopefully I don't keep you too long. Um, that was funny because I wasn't wearing a watch. I don't know if you caught that. I, I see you guys got your game faces on tonight. I'm telling you, I will break you. You guys remember the Rocky movies? I'm the Russian. I'm coming for you. You're going to get in here with me, man. We're going to study this word and laugh, and some of you might cry, but we're going to get engaged, all right? So hallelujah. I know it's stormy outside, but let's do this. We're here. Let's, let's commune with the Father. Um, so what we're going to do tonight is unpack what an elder is, what an elder does, and how they fit within the body of Christ, okay? And uh, you may be tempted to believe there will be absolutely no relevance to you in a study of eldership because you are not one and don't intend on becoming one. Uh, and I should say a couple things to you. Hebrews 13 calls every believer to obey and submit to their elders, okay? Now, first of all, that assumes that you're a part of a local church that has leaders, okay? So just in the writing, it's like, it just says, obey your leaders. So the writer is assuming if you're a Christian, you're a part of a local church. I know that's not real popular today, but that's what the writer of Hebrews thought should be going on. Uh, and secondly, that it, when you're a part of that local church, it should be somebody with leaders that are following Jesus so that you can be following them, uh, but secondly, it should make you want to understand what a godly elder looks like before you're obeying and submitting to them. The writer of Hebrews assumes if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a part of a local church, which means you have leaders, which means you are submitted to them. I would think if I was in that position, which I am, that I would want to then know what a godly elder looks like so I'm not submitting my life to somebody that doesn't know what the heck's going on or is leading me astray or whatever else. That makes sense? I'm trying to get you to have buy-in because we're going to have to do some serious work tonight in the scriptures. The the Bible talks about, you know, laboring in the Word. This is going to be one of those. So um, I hope you brought your, your floaties because we're getting in the deep end, all right? Um, if you're a part of Love City, you're going to understand better tonight what we believe about how church leadership should be structured. Uh, and if you're a part of this faith, faith family, that should be of importance to you. If you aren't, then tonight you will hear a case for church leadership structure that you can weigh and assess as you figure out where it is God has called you to put down roots and join in gospel mission. Because again, the, the assumption of the book of Hebrews is that if you're a Christian, there is somewhere you'll be putting down roots and joining gospel mission. So if that isn't Love City, maybe you're visiting from out of town, praise God, we're so glad you're here. But I, this information will still be helpful to you as you assess wherever it is uh, God would be leading you. Okay? So, um, question one, what are elders? According to the New Testament, elders are men who are called by God and qualified to be responsible for the primary leadership and oversight of the church. The term we hear more often today for this is pastor, 
Okay? Now, I realize that we've already bumped into something that might seem a bit foreign to those of you who've been accustomed to various other leadership structures in church. Uh, some churches have a pastor or pastors and elders and deacons. I'm going to take some time to show you why here at Love City we believe that the word elder and pastor are interchangeable and that they're describing the same position, okay? Uh, and before we get into this, let me say a couple things. I believe that the way leadership is structured in God's church is important. I really believe that. But it's not something I would break fellowship with other Christians over, okay? So here's what I mean when I say that. If there was a church that loves Jesus and preaches the gospel and is on mission uh, but doesn't have the same exact structure as Love City, we could and should still be friends with them. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, the way the church is organized does reveal to some degree that church's view of the body of Christ, and in some ways it reveals their theology. So that's why I'm going to take the time to work through this tonight. We're not just going to breeze over it as we found ourselves bumping into it as we journeyed through Titus. Okay? Uh, the word pastor comes from the Latin word that means shepherd, Okay, And we only see the word pastor mentioned once, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. So once it's translated to English, we only see the word pastor once, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. And the idea of being a servant shepherd over the flock of God is the key to understanding the role of pastor elder. A servant shepherd over the flock of God. Okay, uh, And there are three terms that are used to describe this shepherding role throughout the New Testament. Okay, And I just want to say this to you. I know some people... Some preachers you talk a lot out of original language because I think, you know, I'm not judging anybody's heart, but I think sometimes it, it just makes them feel good to be able to say words that you don't know what it means. I don't go to the original language much because most of the time I don't think it's helpful, but for this we do have to uh, in order to come to an understanding of what's going on. So there are three terms that are used to describe this shepherding role. The first is pastor, and, and the, the Greek word for that is poimen, overseer or episkopos, an elder, or presbyteros, okay? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 5, and uh, I'm going to keep building this case for you. 1 Peter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. So, we're answering the question, what is an elder? First off, I went right out of the chute and told you I believe an elder and a pastor is the same thing. Some of you might still be reeling from that, but that now I'm trying to take you to the language, I'm trying to take you to the word to show you and qualify that statement which for some of you might be very different than what you're used to, and I realize that. Uh, we see these three terms used interchangeably throughout the scriptures, okay? So I gave you the three, those three terms that kind of define that shepherding role, or the three terms that are used in the scriptures to describe that overall shepherding role, that loving um, servant shepherd. You've got all, all three of those, and we're going to see all three of those used by Peter here in, in these verses. So um, there, there are many chapters written in many books about why the clearest way to understand these three words is to see them as describing one office or position, okay? There's a lot of people have taken time to do this, but for the sake of time, I'm going to take you to the clearest evidence I see for this in the scriptures. I'm going to give you just this one thing. Let me also tell you this. Tonight in dealing with this, this will not come anywhere near an exhaustive dealing with the subject. I promise you that. If you are somebody that is, you know, you, you get a little taste for what we're talking about and, and you're hungry for more, uh, the, 
best work that I am aware of on this subject and the most exhaustive treatment of it is a book by Alexander Strzok called Biblical Eldership, okay? So if you want to have somebody really lead you through the scriptures and look at every little nook and cranny on the subject, Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strzok, a lot of the thoughts that I'll be leading you through will be things I've borrowed from him, okay? He did a a really excellent scholarly treatment of this subject. Um, So I'm taking you the clearest evidence that I got. There's a whole lot more we could talk about. Here's why I think all three of those terms, pastor, elder, overseer, why all of them uh, are talking about the same office, okay? 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. Let me just read it first, and I'm going to break it down for you. It says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. <sighs> Good verses, could spend all night there, but let's, let's just see what we got. So it says, therefore I exhort the elders among you, okay, so there we see the, one of the three terms, presbyteros, as your fellow elder, so Peter identifies himself as an elder as he's also talking to his fellow elders, uses that first word, Um, And here's what I'm saying. Some people think these are three different things. I'm trying to show you that it's one office, okay? So he says, to the fellow elders, I'm an elder, uses the word presbyteros, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Then he says, shepherd, right? So this is a verb. He's not saying the word shepherd is a noun. He's saying, shepherd, do this. and the word there, if you go to the Greek, is poinate, which is it's the verb form of the word pastor from Ephesians 4.11. Okay, so first he said, hey, elders, I'm a fellow elder with you, Here's what, and now I'm going to tell you what to do. Shepherd or pastor the flock of God, right? And then he says, uh, exercising oversight. Here's that last word. We had pastor, elder, overseer. See, some people will take that overseer, make that a bishop or, or some other idea. You know, I don't know if they're doing church government or they're playing chess, but it's, you know, you got, they think an overseer is a bishop. They got this guy over here, an elder's different than a pastor. Here we see Peter using all three terms interchangeably as he's talking to one group of people, okay? He wants the elders to shepherd or pastor, same Greek word, the flock of God, and he says exercise oversight, which they're... And again, you're going to see the original language here, uh, the, the lack thereof. Episcopuntes, which is just the verb form of episcopos, which means overseer. And, that's, uh, and then he says, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So that my whole point is we've got some people taking these three different, the elder, pastor, overseer, and seeing it as three different offices. I think this is the clearest evidence as Peter addresses his fellow elders that those three different things are all, in fact, the same thing. So an elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder, and what they do is oversee, okay? Um, The fact that Peter uses every one of these words to describe the duties of a pastor-elder, I think, is the strongest evidence we have that they're describing one office. There is much more. If you're like, "Mm, I don't know if I'm willing to hang my hat on that, Uh, there's there's more, but if you want to go dig, go for it. i got a lot more to walk us through here. So um, some folks will see the word overseer, I already said that, and they'll see that as a bishop um, of many congregations, right? So they, they think like you've got pastor elders and then overseers like maybe oversee many pastor elders or many congregations. 
um, I would just say that if somebody was going to be a bishop, it would have been Peter, right? I mean, Peter was listed first among the apostles every single time. I mean, Peter was the man, right? Uh, so if somebody was going to be a bishop, if somebody was going to get to be the bishop, um, it would have it been him. And how does he define himself in, in that set of verses there? He says, to you elders, I'm writing as your fellow elder. He doesn't take that as some you know, title of grandeur above the others. So um, this is not to say that an elder like Paul, who planted and oversaw several churches in different areas, uh, it's not to say that they didn't do that. He, in fact, did do that. We know that he did that. But what it looks like the model was to do was to plant those churches, appoint elders by God's calling and leading, train them, and then let them lead that congregation. The, the, the guy that, the, the apostle that originally planted the church wasn't hanging around. You, you, you find qualified men, um, called men, and, and you, you determine their qualification. You train them and, and let those elders then lead that congregation. So, um, and, and that just seems to be the picture throughout the New Testament of what they were doing. Um, okay, now to the fun part. <clears throat> you were already having so much fun, you couldn't imagine there was any more. I know. But there is. Uh, you may have heard me say in my initial definition that according to the New Testament, elders are men who are called by God and qualified to be responsible for the primary leadership and oversight of the church. Okay? So let me just go ahead and say it. We here at Love City do believe that men are supposed to serve in the leadership, are supposed to serve in the leadership role of pastor elder. Okay? Now, hold on. As much as I may provide evidence to the contrary... I am not a fool, okay? I know I give you a lot of reasons to think maybe I am, but I'm not as dumb as I look. I do understand that it is not a popular position to have that, that elder pastor is a position reserved for males to serve in, uh, in the midst of a culture that is on its way to erasing gender distinctions altogether. I realize this is not a popular thing to do. I realize that it will cause me problems, okay? I get that. I also realize that no matter how much, I love, how much love I have for anyone who may hear this, they might refuse to listen because their mind is already made up about it. I realize that's going to happen. It, it makes me sad, but it's true. Uh, and if you're finding yourself upset already, I'm just asking you to just give me a chance to work through this with you. Just believe a couple things. I promise, I promise you, I just, I just want to do what the scriptures say. That's true. I really love you, even if I don't you know your name. I, I promise, I care for your soul, and I'm not trying to you know, lord anything over anybody. That's the other thing Peter goes on to say in those verses. Don't lord it over people. Don't be a, a jerk. Don't be a dictator. Man, the whole point, the whole point any pastor or elder, I mean, if they, get, if they get away from this, they've lost the whole thing. Man, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Man, he said wild stuff like, I, I did not, this is the king of glory leaving heaven, coming to earth, and he says stuff like this. I did not come to be served, but to serve. If you, if you see a guy that presumes to be a preacher or teacher or leader among God's people, and, and he doesn't ooze with that kind of sentiment, then, then forget. Forget it. He's lost his way. The brother needs to repent. And so uh, please give me an opportunity. Please give me a hearing. Let, let me serve you with the scriptures. And, and if none of that convinces you, on purpose, I wore this shirt that has a slightly pastel green to it. You guys know I don't like pastel colors, but I wore this because it's calming, okay? <laughs> I would rather be in a harsh, dark color because I like the way they look on me, okay? I don't even like this shirt, but I thought maybe. 
give me a little bit of a little bit of running room here. So if all else fails, just focus on the pastel and open your ears, okay? Um, so here's, here, here we go. First of all, we have to realize that this is an issue of culture, okay? Throughout most of history, women have not been treated fairly, and that is tragic. Many times people have misused the Bible to justify not treating women well, and that is ignorant in addition to being tragic, okay? Good, that was a good spot for the dudes to amen. You missed it, except for one of you, and, and I know who it was. I'm going to put a gold star in their chart. The rest of you, pick up the pace, all right? Um, I would say there are some really good things that have happened as far as respecting and regarding women as equal in the last 50 years or so, um, and I think in some areas there's really still a lot more work that we could do, for sure. Um, what the Bible teaches us, that, that men and women were both created in God's image and thus are of equal value and worth to him. The Bible also teaches that God made men and women different and that it was a good thing that he did that. It was not good for man to be alone. You guys remember that part? Okay, that's in the beginning of the book. And here's my question to you. How did God solve that problem? Did he make another man so they could like, be bros and do physical challenges in the garden all day and have contests to see who could eat the most fruits and veggies or you know, spitting contests? No. God did not make another man to solve the problem of man being alone. He made a woman. Equal in value and worth but different, with different strengths and different emotional range and different attributes, so as to be a complement to the man that they would be a joy and a help to each other. Okay? Will you at least come that far with me? Okay, good. We see this creation order as the main blueprint for how God establishes marriages and families. When Jesus was asked about marriage... He went back and hearkened to the created order. He went back and said, God made them male and female. Okay, And there's, there's more to that than, than what that discussion gets reduced down to anymore. There's so much beauty in it. Um, Ephesians 5 says that the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. And if you're a sister in here and you bristle at that, I, I need to say a couple things to you. First of all, I love you. And I need to say to you that the only reason you're bristling at that is because you've been taught that men are stupid and brutish and not to be trusted, so you would never submit to one. But here's the truth. The only reason you wouldn't be overjoyed by the truth that your husband should be the head of your family is because you forgot the second part of that verse. Here it is. It says that the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. And here, here's, my, here's my question. How has Christ headed the church? Right? How has he done that job? Right? He's by loving her sacrificially, by shedding his blood and dying so that he could have her. That's, that's how Christ heads the church. And that's why the, the whole deal, the whole headship deal is framed that way. The conversation is very clear. We miss that point, man. How, how, how has Christ loved the church? How has Christ led the church? By humbling himself as a servant all the way to a wretched criminal's death on a cross because more than he cared for himself, he cared for his bride. That's the way that Christ led the church. That's the way a man should lead a woman. And if that's the way it was going, we wouldn't have to have this conversation. I wouldn't have to try to put on a pastel shirt and, and, and tiptoe my way around the bristle that would probably come from a lot of the sisters. 
So, here's what I say to you. This is what male headship is supposed to look like. Both in the home, as husbands and fathers, serve and shepherd their families, and in the church, which is really just a larger expression of the same familial structure. Okay? That's where male headship comes from. All the way from the created order, it's the way it is in the family, and, and when, when it is expressed the way it should be, it's a beautiful thing, and everybody involved is happy about it, and you take that expression and, and you magnify it out to the church. We are a gospel family. Male headship makes sense in the same sense. H- however, it doesn't <laughs> if the men aren't leading like Christ leads. That's where the problem comes in. So, men, I want you to listen to me right now. This is on us. Okay? The reason why many women would never trust a church that obeys the Bible in regards to male leadership is because many, if not most men today, are not sacrificial servant leaders like Jesus. They are selfish and demanding and prideful, and no woman is ever going to joyfully submit to that. I don't care how many Bible verses you pull out. Go ahead. It's not going to work. Because part of, part of being the head, fella, is go, you go first. Well, well, she won't submit. Look, Listen, man. Yes, she will. You, you love her like Christ loved the church, she won't be able to help herself. That's how that works. You lay yourself all the way down. Your mentality is that what you want doesn't matter. What you need doesn't matter. All you care about is what her and your family need. You take care of your family like Christ took care of us. What did Christ hold back from us? Nothing. What price was he willing to pay to have us? Everything. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. When male headship is done after the image of Christ, the conversation gets a lot easier. I believe, men, that we will answer for our failures in this and the fact that many women have turned away from the church and been caused to stumble in their faith because they can't square the biblical instruction for male leadership with the sorry excuses for men that they've been exposed to. I believe, I believe we'll answer for that. So I'm not putting this on the ladies because, yeah, I'm standing up to say, yes, I believe what the Bible presents is that elder pastors are supposed to be males. But what that also means is if we're not doing that in the likeness of Christ and his, his complete sacrificial servanthood, we're, not going, we're going to have to have difficult conversations about the fact that leadership is supposed to be male in the church. If we are leading like Christ... I think it becomes a non-issue. I'm not saying for everybody. Of course, there's always going to be somebody that's, you know, read some book or saw some YouTube video that, that knows more than Jesus and everybody else, but I'm saying in general, I think it would go better. Okay? Told you that'd be the fun part. Now, we do believe that the, uh, the servant leadership role of pastor elder is to be filled by men, but that does not mean that women's role in the church is not crucial, okay? Um, I can just anticipate it. Some guy's going to pipe up right now, uh, maybe just in his mind, uh, since I've been yelling, he may not say it out loud, but uh, he's probably thinking, you know, 
My wife doesn't speak unless spoken to because I'm a real man. I rule my house like a real man. What? <laughs> and, and I would say to you, bud, yeah, she probably is silently smiling at you as she watches you eat that pot roast that she's poisoning just enough <laughs> to kill you slowly. So enjoy that silence. Good job, tough guy. Cretan. Um, interestingly, I had, this is, this is the truth, I had someone ask me about this just this week, so I want to address it now. Um, some would say that uh, women can have no prominence in the church because they misunderstand 1 Corinthians 14, which says that women should be silent in churches, okay? Uh, I would say this to you. At first glance, it, it does seem that this would be a blanket command that uh, women are never allowed to speak at all in the church. However, earlier in the same epistle, so that's in 1 Corinthians, this is in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul gives this, um, that Paul gives this command. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul mentions women praying and prophesying as allowable activities. Uh, and we know that older women are to teach younger women. That's from Titus 2.4. We'll hit that coming up soon. Um, and so because of these verses and others, we know that 1 Corinthians 14, 33, and 35 is not an absolute command for women to always be silent in church, okay? We're not handing out muzzles at the door for the women as they walk in. Um, and if you're a husband and you just thought, well, could I just get one for home? You're an idiot, okay? <laughs> Stop. You totally missed the last 10 minutes, okay? Um, it seems to be a specific command in the context of what Paul is dealing with in the scriptures around it, okay? So if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, he's dealing with Corinth. He's dealing with their absolute wildness. Uh, they are just unruly, and it seems that the, what, it, what you can draw from what he's saying is that their services have just become a complete circus. Uh, there's no order whatsoever, and so he, he seems to be speaking to that, and he says that the gatherings in Corinth were wild. They were out of order. People were all speaking in tongues at once. They were just, okay, ready, set, go, tongues of Palooza. Everybody's speaking in tongues. And Paul's like, if, if somebody walks in on that, man, like, that's not a believer, what, what are they going to, they're going to run. Nobody's going to know what the heck's going on. And so that was going on. People were giving fake prophecies, you know, to try to look cool. And, and the other thing that was happening is women... Um, Women, that the truth was in that time, women were oftentimes less educated than men. That, that was true. The literacy rates were, were less for women at that point. Um, I'm glad that's not the case today, but that was true then. And so what that was leading to is that a lot of times in the middle of the service, somebody's trying to preach or make a point or somebody's having a legitimate prophecy. And, you know, right in the middle of what's going on, women are just blurting out questions. Well, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like just right in the middle of the thing. And it's totally disrupting it. And that's Paul's whole deal here is God is a God of order. We need to do things with some type of order. Of course, we always leave room for the moving of the Holy Spirit, but, but God doesn't do things in a whole bunch of chaos, right? And so that's part of what he's addressing there. And this, this tendency for the women there was to just be blurting out questions. So he said, you know, if they got questions, they should wait, go home, talk to their husbands, because if they're Husbands are serving Jesus, and they got a Bible in their hand. Their husbands are going to be able to go home, have a great conversation about Jesus with their wife, and that's going to awaken, a, you know, probably some emotional intimacy maybe, right? So Paul's trying to give marriage advice too. Brothers, take your wives home and talk to them about the Bible and the sermon and stuff, and you just might be surprised. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, okay, here's some other reasons why we know that uh, the sisters should not just be disregarded as somehow second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Romans 16.1, uh, Paul commends a sister named Phoebe to the church, and he lists her as a deacon. Okay, um, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to say that in Titus, we do not see qualifications for deacons as we do in uh, the book of 1 Timothy. I think the reason for that is Titus is planting churches in Crete. They are younger. They have not been developed yet. It's clear that there needs to be pastor elders in order for the thing to get going, but the deacons were something that was not needed till later on. The, Timothy was in Ephesus. It was a more mature church. The elders were established. It was time to also bring on deacons. I don't have time to break down all of the difference between that, but if you just, for general uh, purpose, the way it's most of the time understood is that elders are concerned with and charged with the spiritual care of the flock of God, deacons more so the physical needs. And our tendency would be to demote the deacons because it's the physical need, and we all have this like weird tendency for mysticism, I don't know why, but it's like, well, yeah, the, the spiritual guys are so much better, but, here's, but what did James say? James said, caring for orphans and widows... That's true religion. It's definitely not a pair of jeans, okay? So James tells us that, you know, you can have all your spiritual hoopla, you can do, you know, do all your praying. I'm not trying to minimize all that. That, that is all needed stuff, but, but go, go, ahead, ignore, go ahead and ignore orphans and widows in their need. Go ahead, don't have deacons doing what they should be doing. Don't have brothers and sisters taking care of people that are in need. Don't, go ahead, don't care about the single moms and see what happens. James is warning us, man, don't, don't make that weird distinction. It's, it's not lesser, and that's what, that's what I, want, I wish we would understand. Like, and we're, we'll get to this more. I'm going to yell about this in a second. Just you're, get ready for it. Jesus is the head of the church, man. The rest of us are the body, okay? As far as the body is concerned, there, there's, there's like one member that matters most. That's the head. The, the rest of us, man, we're all just together to get this done. And so, you know what? It's important that I studied and I labored in God's word so that I could come here today by the Holy Spirit and preach this sermon. It's real important that I did that. But you know what also is real important? That the, the kids' discipleship teachers also did the same thing. It's really important that someone got here and opened up the building. It's really important that someone cared enough to, you know, put out uh, connect cards and somebody cared enough to turn on the air conditioning so you guys aren't sweating and thinking about your pits instead of thinking about what I'm trying to talk to you about out of God's word, right? You can minimize all this stuff. It's really important that somebody at some point came in here and cleaned something up because if they didn't, we'd all be swimming around in trash, right? So we, we, can, we can make these, these false assumptions about what's more important, but I don't think God sees it that way. We're a body, and we're getting something done, and I just want to know what my part is and do it. I'd be real happy to do that. I'm just glad to be on the team, right? Amen. Okay, so Phoebe's listed as a deacon, so that's a leadership position in the church, it's also clear that Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, played a prominent role in helping to preserve sound doctrine as the early church grew. We see Priscilla and Aquila pulling Apollos off to the side and saying, listen, brother, the baptism of John is not the whole story. You need to have some more before you get out here. I mean, Apollos was really strong in the words. We get this idea he was a really charismatic preacher, could, you know, could, could get a crowd, could, could get people going, but he, he needed some stuff added to him, and God used um, both Priscilla, both Aquila and his wife Priscilla to help... Uh, him with his doctrine as he was moving along on his journey with Jesus. Um, I would also call to your attention, the first person to see Jesus resurrected wasn't Peter, wasn't James, it wasn't John, it was Mary. Okay? It's another reason why I think the, you know, I don't, I don't even know why I'm going here because I don't have time, but it's another reason why I think the resurrection story is legit. It's another reason why I think the gospel accounts should be given credibility. 
in that day, because women were disregarded and it was really, really tragic, if those guys were trying to spin up a yarn, if they were trying to come up with a lie and they wanted you to believe that Jesus was you know, risen from the dead, they would, not have, they would not have gone, they wouldn't have led with, yeah, a chick showed up first and saw him. That wouldn't, that wouldn't have been how they, because you couldn't even take, a woman, could, unfortunately people were ignorant and a woman couldn't even go to court and testify in that day. So if these guys are trying to come up with some story, they're painting some fanciful picture to try to sell you on the resurrection of Christ, which, of course, you know, is always a mind-blowing idea to me because every one of these guys except John ended up being murdered for their faith. And John, it wasn't because they didn't try to kill John. The boiling oil just didn't kill him. I just don't understand what the motive... What do we imagine the motivation of the apostles is to dream up this resurrection story? You know what? I, I have not been persecuted to the point of death lately. <laughs> Guys, can, let's, 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 let's whip up a story and let's commit the rest of our lives to telling this lie. Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, if, if, you, if you see the story go another way, like they, they make this stuff up and they, and they write the gospel so, as, you know, so that, that you would understand that, well, if you were one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, then everyone should bring you gold every day. And if the story ended them with, with all of them sitting on big mountains of gold, then, you know, you could bring me, yeah, you know what? I could maybe see the human, you know, motive in that situation. But when the guys knew, and you can't tell me they didn't know, what happened to, what happened to the king? He got murdered, so they knew that perpetuating this message was not going to lead to happy time for them. And yet people want to try to tell you, well, you know, yeah, the apostles, they were just real clever, and they made up this whole thing, and they stole the body. That, that's, that, wow. Anyways, let's keep going. Um, so you could ask, from, from a biblical perspective, which is better, men or women? That's like saying, which is better, mountains or the beach? You can't compare them, right? I mean, they both have good qualities. They both have beauty in and of themselves, different. I mean, if you ask me, like if I had to assign a gender to one or the other, I'd say mountains are men, like rocks and trees. And yeah, I'd rather go to the mountains and the beach. But it's not really something you can compare. Okay, you guys didn't like that one. What's better? What's better? Apples or oranges? Which one's better? Come on. Well, it depends, doesn't it? Are you making a pie or a marmalade? <laughs> right? It's, it's not which one's better, man. These are two different things with two different purposes. Thank you, God, for doing that. I'm, I'm so thankful. I honestly am. I'm really thankful my wife is a woman. <laughs> and that she's not like me in a lot of ways. And that is where we stop. <laughs> the Bible is not anti-woman, but it is pro-created order. God made men and women different on purpose, and he has called men to be willing to sacrifice the most that they may serve the flock of God as overseers. And God calls the flock, both men and women, to love them and make that life of service and sacrifice a joy and not a burden. It's also the guy, I have, a, I have a feeling that the guy in Hebrews had some pastoral experience because he, say, he says, man, those of you that are the flock of God, don't, don't make it hard on the guy that has committed his life to do everything he possibly can to care for you and love you and look over your soul. Because uh, it's hard enough when you make it easy. That's, that's what he's getting at. And so, um, that's the call. And I think that maybe that's a, that's a different way to look at it. And I hope, I hope if you've struggled with that, that that... 
that helps you to see what's going on there. Um, it's no surprise that when Peter is instructing elders in his letter that he goes to the analogy of a shepherd because this is how King Jesus spoke to him about it in John 21. I don't know if you guys remember this, but um, three times right in a row, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter starts to get like hurt by it. He's like, of course you know I love you, Jesus. This is after Jesus had resurrected. And uh, three times when, after he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, of course I love you. Jesus says to him, then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? You know, when Jesus says something once, I pay attention. If he says something three times, brother, you, you, you better perk your ears up. Because apparently he, he was making a point. And, and clearly it stuck with Peter. Because when it was his turn then to instruct elders, what did he say? What did he reach for as an analogy? He said, brothers, elders, fellow elders, shepherd the flock. Shepherd them. So what does that mean? Um, we're going to talk about three things that shepherds do to take care of the sheep. Okay? First of all, they feed them. Okay? 1 Timothy 3.2 says an elder must be able to teach the word of God. Titus 1.9 says that uh, an elder needs to hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, and he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. So an elder not only needs to know the word, but he's got to be able to have enough spine to stand up to somebody that may come in and propose something else other than what the word says. Okay? That happens Yes, it does. Uh, so, first of all, um, shepherds, they, they feed the sheep. Secondly, they tend the sheep. They tend to the sheep. Real shepherds know the sheep. Real shepherds know the sheep. I've heard it say that uh, a real shepherd smells like sheep. They are entrusted to protect and truly care for them. John 10 talks about a hireling that is just in it for the money, that he doesn't really love the sheep. And as soon as there is danger or difficulty, he's running away like a pansy. That's not a real shepherd. A true shepherd called by Jesus to the work will fight against evil, whether it be in the form of lies that the sheep are believing or wolves who are trying to sneak in and prey on them. A real shepherd loves the sheep and he will stand at the risk of his own life to fight for them. That's what it's supposed to look like. They also, so they feed the sheep, they tend the sheep, they oversee the sheep. Real shepherds know where the good grazing is, they know where the good water is, and they are thinking ahead and planning about how to get the sheep to that place uh, safely. Both times that Paul gives us qualifications for an elder, he says that they must be sensible and sober-minded, which means they need to be alert and they need to be able to make a plan. They need to be able to oversee all of what's going on, care for the entirety of God's flock, and be able to kind of chart out a course for where they're headed. Um, the, the, so the third question we're going to deal with, it was um, what, what is an elder? What do they do? And the third question we're going to deal with is how many elders should there be? Okay. Uh, we believe that the weight of the evidence in the New Testament points to what we would refer to as a plurality of elders. Okay. So that means more than one. It doesn't get much more specific than that, but it does seem to point to the fact that there should be more than one pastor per congregation uh, when it's allowed for. Uh, clearly, you know, say Titus is coming to Crete, he's planting churches, he may have to raise a guy up and appoint him as an elder, figure out he's called by God, get him going, and then train him how to identify and 
call, you know, and equip the next guy, right? So sometimes that's the way that works, especially when you're planting churches. Um, but for us, we believe that a plurality of elders is a group of called and qualified men who lead the church by laying down their life to serve her. This group would be equal in authority between them, and they would provide each other accountability and encouragement as they serve the church together. Um, a small caveat, something I think you would probably not ever worry about unless you were sitting in an elders meeting where a decision had to be made. Um, though I believe that the office of elder means that if somebody calls somebody to that office of elder, pastor, overseer, that kind of endowed in that office is the level of authority to do what is necessary to take care of the flock of God, to make decisions, to do what needs to be done. I do think that in any local congregation, though, what, what you're invariably going to have is probably, though you have equality in the office, you're probably going to have a first among equals, and here's where this matters, right? So let's say you've got six elders on a team, uh, and God has commissioned them with leading the church, and there's a decision to be made. Um, no, I need an odd number. I'm not very good at math. Let's say there's five of them, right? And, you know, it comes down to there's going to be a tie, and you need a tiebreaker, we need to make a decision right now. We don't have, we don't have continuity. We, 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 you know, it's, we're deadlocked. Somebody's got to make a call. Typically, that guy's probably going to be either the founding pastor or the guy that's come along and would be, would probably, we, we don't like the term senior pastor for a man. We think that's Jesus, but either a lead pastor, lead teaching pastor, the guy that's a primary communicator is probably going to make that decision. Other than that, other than in that situation, what should happen is there should be a constant working together of those men to hold each other accountable, to lift each other up because the work is hard, um, to pray for each other. Uh, and what that builds in is some safety for the church because you have other qualified men that really love Jesus that are checking on each other. You've got, um, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, like a variety of gifts that are making the mission go better because you're not relying on just one man's gift set. Uh, you don't have the problem that sometimes happens in churches where you end up with a personality cult. You've got one guy that's just the leader, the big cheese, the head honcho. And, and so uh, invariably the church kind of takes on their personality, including the quirks, including the shortfalls, right? So when you have a team of, of elders that, that kind of spreads that out and they can, they can balance each other out. So um, yeah, there, there's that. So just so you know, here at Love City, we are moving towards a plurality of elders. There are several men who have been expressed that they feel called by God to this kind of sacrificial service, and they are in the process of being assessed. Um, and this is, I just share this with you, this is my great hope, that uh, we would have so many qualified men that would be called out from among us that we would be forced to multiply and plant more campuses and churches. I, I, my hope would be that the Father heart of God gets in so many of you that when you, when you hear the kind of um, absolute, just complete life sacrifice, I mean, Paul talks about pouring himself out for the sake of gospel ministry. Like, I'm hoping that more men, as they get to know Jesus, that that begins to resonate in them, and what they want more than anything is to pour themselves completely out for the, the, the furthering of gospel mission so that as many people as possible can meet Jesus. My great hope is that as we do that, we, we don't have enough elder slots here, so we gotta just send people out. We have to multiply more campuses, more churches. I want to be a leader factory. 
And, and my great hope is that when we come together week after week, we preach the gospel hard, we preach the Bible hard, we come together, we don't mess around, we keep on gospel mission, we keep challenging each other, exhorting each other, pushing each other to love and good works, that as we grow, as you guys are discipled, that we got leaders that we send out, more people become Christians, we train them, and we just do that till all of us are dead, and that we can go look at Jesus, and he can say, well done. Like, that's my plan, like, and I'm hoping you want to come along. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to get as many people as possible knowing about King Jesus, and I'm going, to, I'm going to work on them until they want to serve him with absolutely everything they got, and they're willing to give up their life all the way for the gospel. We can get them, get them in leadership and then, and then hit the repeat button over and over and over until he lets me go home. That's what I'm going to do. Um, Alexander Strzok writes this in Biblical Eldership. By definition, the elder structure of government is a collective form of leadership in which each elder shares equally the position, authority, and responsibility in the office. I believe the preponderance of evidence and what we have from the New Testament about the office of elder, I believe Strzok is right. I believe those that have come to that conclusion are the closest we have. And again, let me, I want to say this again at this point because I've been making a pretty hard case for it. There's pro, there's le, this is one of those areas of the scriptures where there's less said about this than we wish there was, right? Paul did not draw out an org chart in one of these letters, one of these pastoral epistles, right? I, I really wish he would have because a lot of arguing would have been avoided, but he didn't. So we have to do our best to look at all of the, the clues we have in the scriptures. And I really believe that a plurality of elders is, is the closest thing we have. And so... Um, I'm going to give you two, two sets of reasons for that. First of all, the biblical case for that. I'm now going to qualify for you why I believe a plurality of elders is the best way to understand leadership structure within God's church. Ready? Here we go. Titus 1.5. That's where we started. He says, um, I want you to appoint elders in every city. Okay, so what was going on there is they were trying to plant, and this would have been a daunting task because Crete had a whole lot of cities. They were trying to plant a church in every city. We want a Jesus church in every city, and he wanted him to go to every city and do what? Appoint elders, right? In plural, okay? We get the idea from that that there was probably more than one per place when uh, the situation allowed for it. And if the situation didn't allow for it, then as soon as possible, you know, with careful consideration, they were going to work towards having that. Um, in Acts 20, 17, Paul calls the elders of the church at Ephesus together for a final farewell, right? So all of the elders from Ephesus gather to Paul. He bids them farewell before he goes on his journey. In Acts 14, it says, uh, when they had appointed elders in every church after they had fasted and prayed about it to seek the Lord's will about it, right? Because this is not just a function of, well, this guy's charismatic or this guy's uh, seems to have some leadership ability, or this guy seems to be somewhat gifted. I'll just tell you this right now. Um, as, as far as us being a leader factory, like the, the very first thing that's going to catch the eye of leadership at Love City to figure out whether you have a, a shot of being called by God to be an elder or an overseer, or a deacon for that matter, is going to be that servant heart of King Jesus, first of all. I don't care. You could be the most eloquent. I mean, you could just smash me to pieces in a preaching contest. And, and I hope you can, and if you can, then we'll give you the job. But ultimately, what we need to see first is that if somebody needs help, man, you're willing to help them. That if trash needs to be taken out, you're willing to take it out, right? That if somebody's feet need washed, you know, we don't run around washing people's feet, but you know what I'm talking about. 
that you're willing to do whatever it takes to, to be a servant. That's, that's the thing that's going to catch you. Any of the guys that are in the process right now of being assessed, that's the other thing I told you guys during the Life Lesson series. There was, people think I'm just in constant chaos and always behind the ball, but I've got a little bit of method to the madness. There's some pre-planning happening. And I knew during Life Lessons that we were coming here, and I wanted you to hear why those guys were qualified to come up here and teach you the Word. And every single time, the first thing I told you was not, well, I think they know a little bit of Bible, or maybe this, you know, a couple of them have degrees, and of course that's a qualification, but that's not the one that got them up there. The one that got them up there is the fact that they're willing to serve and be humble like Jesus. Because leadership is about serving. It's a complete inversion of the way the world thinks about it. But if you are not totally hyped about the fact that you are called by God as a leader to pour your life out for the sake of others, then you're not going to make it. And I'm not going to put you in a position to fail. Um, okay, I'm still giving you biblical case for plurality of elders. Okay, I gave you Acts 14. Um, they said they appointed elders in every church and then commended them to the Lord. In James 5, he says to call for the elders of the church, plural, um, and they can pray for the sick. So it seems that James assumes there would be multiple elders there to be called upon. Okay? Um, now, okay, so that's a biblical case. I'm going to give you a, kind of a pragmatic case now for um, why I think plurality of elders makes the most sense. Um, we don't work from pragmatism. I think that's, you can get a lot of trouble starting from, well, what would work? We start from the scriptures, but I think there's a lot of reasons why also this works. Um, I would give you this, I, I would just, I'm going to submit this to you, this idea. This could have been the whole sermon. I'm going to give you the really Reader's Digest version. There's, there's an idea that, um, of the leadership gifts you see in Jesus, they can be defined in kind of three offices, prophet, priest, and king. That Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was a priest, and Jesus was a king, and only Jesus expressed those three leadership gifts perfectly. We as his under-shepherds, we as, as um, all, all that come behind him to uh, take care of his flock, we have some of these gifts. Um, I, I don't think any man has all three. I think some guys can have two, some guys can have one. I think Jesus is the only one that had all three. Uh, and I'm going to explain to you kind of what comes with those leadership gifts, okay? So, um, and, and it, it kind of ties back to what, I told you what an elder does, right? That they feed the sheep, they tend to the sheep, and they oversee the sheep, okay? So, um, prophet, priest, king. First of all, prophet, right? So what, 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 what were prophets known for? What are they good at? Prophets have a gift for declaring God's word, right? A prophet is going to be gifted to speak. They're going to be gifted to get into the word and pull out of it what it is God would like to speak to his people. Some people are gifted with that prophet gift. It's just clear. Uh, it's, and it's not just oratory. There's an anointing behind what they say. When they say stuff, it's clearly from God. And when they say stuff, people's hearts are changed because God's words are in it, okay? That's the prophet gift. And so when you're looking at what elders do, the prophet gift helps them to feed the sheep because declaring and, and preaching God's word is how we are fed spiritually, okay? So pro that's prophet. Priest, that priestly gift... Um, the, you know, the priests were the ones that were touching the people, man. The priests were, the people were coming up, man. They were, they were a part of the sacrifices. They were kind of, they were in there with the people. And so the priests, 
that priestly gift is kind of a gift to, I think, to tend the sheep. There are guys that are just, they're good with biblical counseling, marriage counseling. They are gifted to be able to sit across the table from somebody one-on-one. And, and, and whatever that gift set is, whatever it is God puts in them, they're able to relate to them. They're able to, they have an empathy to them. They're able to really uh, do a good job at tending to sheep, to have that, that strong, empathetic, priestly gift so that they can handle counseling and, and flock care type things. Um, and uh, that, so that priestly gift helps to tend the sheep. The kingly gift, I think, is uh, a gift to kind of oversee the sheep, right? So that kingly gift is, is a guy that's really good at administrative stuff, really good at systems and implementation and forward thinking and planning and all of that type of stuff, and, and the reality is, in order for a church to be on mission that's actually doing something, in order, f- I mean, you could just, you know, you can pull it out of drive, go from movement to museum, and just maintain. That's, that's pretty easy, but if you're trying to do something, if you're trying to accomplish gospel mission, you're going to need all three of these rocking, right? You're going to need somebody that's bringing the word of God clearly, and is gifted and anointed to do it. You're going to need somebody that's going to not only be helping to disciple people, but it's going to be dealing with tragedy along the way, going to be helping people to, to you know, counsel people through difficulty. It's going to be helping to counsel through marriages. It's going to be rejoicing with people when good things happen. It's going to, you know, all of that. You need that priestly gift. You're going to need that kingly gift, man. Somebody's got to be laying track in front of the train far enough that that thing doesn't derail. And if you pick up some speed and you're actually doing something for Jesus, you really need that good planning administrative gift, okay? And so I, I anticipate that some of you are sitting out there, you know, taking bets on <clears throat> what you would, what I think my gift is, and I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you, I, I would peg myself in that list as, as probably equal parts prophet priest. I think God has gifted me to teach the Bible. I'm, I don't have a big head about it. I'm not the best preacher in the world, but I can get into this Bible by God's grace and anointing, and I can find something to help us. I can... I can, like the prophet gift I have, I can get with God alone and I can get the big picture. I can figure out where it is we're supposed to go. I can sit down with people. I think God's gifted me to counsel, you know, and some of you may have sat with me and been counseled and say, brother, I think you need to rethink that. I don't know, but um, it seems to, I feel refreshed many times because I feel God's Holy Spirit use me in those situations and I've seen people's lives be helped. That's where I come to that judgment. For me, the, the, the one I struggle with most is the kingly gift. Um, like I said, I can paint a big picture. I can, I can get alone with God, and I can figure out where it is we're supposed to go, but I really, really need help with the details of how to get there. You know what I mean? Like, let's, let's storm hell with water pistols. Everybody get it and go. Let's go run, right? And somebody's going to be like, <clears throat> Pastor Vince, first we need water pistols, okay? We're going to need directions to hell. Uh, you know, stuff I don't think about. It's like, let's get it done, you know, like, I got all the intensity and steam we need, but I need somebody to help me lay track. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and, but by God's grace, wouldn't you know it, he's brought people with kingly gift that feel called to help Love City and feel called to the mission of uh, introducing people to Jesus and loving God and loving people and making disciples. And so I'm just really thankful for that. Um, and, and I'm really thankful, as much as it's hard to not, I wish I just had all three as much as Jesus did so I could get more done, but it's really beautiful that he does that, that he doesn't let any one guy have them all, right? Because what would happen to that guy? Oh man, he'd die. He would go straight to death in pride. He'd be done for. So I'm really glad that God does um, restrict us in that way so that A, we have to lean on him, and B, we get to lean on each other. So it's cool.
Um, I'll give you a couple arguments quickly against plurality of elders because let's, let's face it, there are a lot of churches that do not, their church government does not look that way. Their church leadership structure doesn't look that way. I don't want to say government because it's way different than what we're talking about as far as civic government, but um, a lot of people's church leadership structure does not look like I'm proposing to you, that there's like King Jesus at the top and then elders, right? And then you know, you've got department heads or whatever else, that those elders are kind of over whatever sections, however it's divvied up. Again, we don't have all the details on that. Uh, from the Bible, but um, it is pretty clear there should be several elders. It is pretty clear that that's one office that they should be overseeing, uh, that they should be taking care of the sheep. So that's what we know, and that's what we're drawing from. Arguments against plurality. Some people will point to Moses in the situation in the Old Testament. They'll look at the Moses model, and they'll say, well, isn't that, shouldn't we copy that, right? I mean, that, that looks legitimate. Um, here's what I would say to that. Moses was pre-Christ. I, I don't personally believe today that what you need is a man to stand and be a representative between you and Christ. I read somewhere that there used to be a curtain that separated man from God, but that thing tore at this one certain event, right? It was when King Jesus gave up his spirit and he said, it is finished, man, and rocks broke in half and that curtain tore no longer did God need to take one guy up on the mountain to talk to him, and then, you know, that, that's not what's happening here. I want you to understand that. I didn't go up to the mountain today to get individual communication from God that you're not, you don't have any availability to and come down, and now I'm the guru that's going to, you know, teach you. That's not how it works. We are all a kingdom of priests now. Why? Because Jesus made that possible. And so the Moses model to me doesn't work. I, I, I am uncomfortable with an org chart that has me at the top and everybody else, you know, should come and hear what my stone tablets have to say. I, I'm not Moses, man. And it, I don't see that model in the New Testament. I, I don't, once Jesus came and did what he did, it changed the way we structure leadership. I'm not Moses and I'm not Joshua, and nobody's going to be, not here. Okay? Um, I've, I've also heard this said, this is more of a pragmatic argument, it's not very biblical. There probably are some legit guys that would really try to do some good, you know, exegetical work at it. I, I don't hear a lot from that camp about it, but I have heard this sentiment, that anything with two heads is a freak, right? So just from a pragmatic organizational standpoint, people would tell you, like, you can't have people's um, loyalties divided, you know what I mean? Like, you need to kind of need to have one leader, and everybody, you know, follows after that leader, and, and if you've got more than one, then there's going to be infighting and stuff like that. And I, get, you know, I guess in most organizations that's probably true, but if like Jesus is king over the thing and we're doing one mission, which is making him glorious, then there shouldn't be infighting between the elders. They should be pushing each other on and blowing wind in each other's sails and loving each other and picking each other up when they fall, right? That's what I would think that would look like. And if it doesn't, then you know, somebody in the group needs to stand up and say, hold on a second, what are we doing here? Right, because we're supposed to lead this thing with love. And not only are we, have we called to lay down our lives, to pour ourselves out for the serving of this congregation that God's called us to, but we should be doing that for each other. So what the heck are we fighting about? Okay? That's, so that, there you go. I would also say, you know, to, just to the sentiment that anything with two heads is a freak, I would say that they are exactly right. Totally. And absolutely, there is only one head of the church. There should only be one head of the church but his name is Jesus. 
And, and that's, isn't, that, isn't that what Ephesians 5 says? Doesn't it say? Husbands, be the head of your wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Pastor Vince is not head of the church. And pastor nobody else that comes along. If I die tomorrow, they're not head of the church, man. Jesus is the head of the church. That's why if I go out here and get hit by a bus, guess what? Love City and its mission keeps going. That's how this should look. This church is not built on my personality or whatever little bit of charisma I may have. Listen, man, God called Love City into existence to get a job done. And that's let as many people as possible in this region know that the name of Jesus is great and his mercy is available to those that will trust him by faith. We got a job to do. And that's not all on my shoulders. It's as much on yours as it is mine. Because if Jesus is the head, the rest of us are feeling the weight of the mission. It's going to be by his anointing and by his grace, but we're all in it equally. You are not less called to do what you do than I am. That's what I need you to understand. I love you. But we need to, there's just no time, man. There's no time to mess around. It's too serious. Because what's happening every single day, I don't know when the last time is you thought about this, is people are dying and going to hell forever. And that's really, really real. And that's why this matters. That's why we take an entire sermon to talk about what church leadership structure looks like. But more important than me selling you on a plurality of elders, I really wanted to give you an idea of what it is to be called to serve in God's church. If you've got a leader of any department, if you're a leader in this church, I do not, I do not want to ever hear you doing anything other than serving people with your whole heart. If you're in charge of something, that's because you're trusted to serve that group of people specifically. The king of glory derobed himself and took up a towel and bowed himself at the feet of his disciples and washed those feet. Do you know what that left you? Zero options for getting a big head. Because King Jesus himself humbled himself, and washing the feet wasn't even the greatest display of his humility. It was when he went and died the death of a thief and bled out. Let his precious blood flow down a cross and puddle on the ground. That's humility. He served us all the way to death, even death on a cross. So don't you dare get some idea in your mind that if you get a title or a position, that's now you got something that you didn't have before. If you have authority, it's authority to serve. It's all it's for. And if we do that, guys, just that, just the manifestation of that kind of attitude will preach the gospel. People that don't walk around with a name badge that because they were given some authority or some clout, all of a sudden start lording it over people. That's what, that's what, that's what natural people do. But we're called to live supernaturally. And so the more promoted I am, the more humble I need to get. The lower I go. And that's what this looks like. Why is Jesus the head? Why is he the head of the church and not some guy? Why is Jesus the head of the church and nobody else? Because he solved the sin problem. He's the chief shepherd. He's the savior king. He's the one who built the bridge that we can never, we can never build, right? Every single one of us, starting from Adam and Eve on, every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the mark. All of us are imperfect. That is undeniable. And here's the deal. Jesus is perfect. God the Father is perfect. And what we need to be, to have security for eternity, what we want to happen is to, 
go from broken relationship with God the Father to restored relationship with God the Father because what I'm looking for is not so much to escape hell for eternity, but I want to be with the God who loves me for eternity. And relationship between God and man was broken by sin. Could you fix the problem? I couldn't fix it. That's why I'm not the head of the church. I don't have a toolbox big enough to build a bridge to get broken men and women back to the God that made them. But you know who did? His name is Jesus. And he didn't build a bridge. He just laid across the chasm. So now we walk across him to get back to the Father. That's why he's the head of the church. That is the truth of the gospel today. Every one of us, our relationship with God is broken by our sin, but Jesus made a way, not through good works. It's not that you're going to start doing stuff you haven't been doing or you're going to quit doing all the bad stuff you've been doing. That's not going to get it. That's not going to fix the problem. That doesn't take you back to perfection, which is required to be in relationship with a perfect God. You can't fix it. You need righteousness, and that only can be imputed by one who earned it for you, and that was Jesus on the cross. He lived a perfect life, which meant he could stand in our place. He could die for our sins. He could do the work we couldn't do, and he did it. He humbled himself. His leadership was shown in perfection as he humbled himself. He led us, but he served us at the cross that day. And he bled, and he died. And three days later, he rose from the grave, triumphant over sin and death and hell and what I'm asking you today is, can you trust that? If you have not put faith in Christ, that is what makes the difference today. Not whether or not you can go from here and modify your behavior. None of that's going to matter. The question that matters is, what have you done with Jesus? Can you trust him? Will you believe the gospel message? Will you believe what these scriptures present to be as God's opinion about eternity? Will you believe what these scriptures say? Will you believe that what they communicate to you is that what God wants is to be restored in relationship to you as a father is to a son or a daughter? And he wanted that so bad that he put himself in the position to pay the price so that he could have it, that he died in your place. God sent Jesus, that part of his Trinitarian nature, his own son, and he paid the price. He bled and died. He fulfilled the covenant that we never could. That's what God did. That's how much he loves you. The question is today, will you trust him? Can you accept it? I'm asking you, I'm asking you to do it. Please trust him. Don't wait anymore. I don't know what you're waiting for. He's good and he loves you. And he's the only one that can save you. He's got a mission for you. He made you for something. If you're sitting here breathing this air, then God puts you on this planet to do something. It's more than just go beat your brains out to earn a check, you know, buy some stuff and hit repeat. You're made for more than that. It's a mission to do. Please help us. We need it. If you've got gifts and talents, man, I'm telling you, we need it. We need you to jump in and serve. There's a lot of work to do. May we be a people who care deeply about the truth of the word. May we be a people who will never bow to cultural pressure if that would cause us to contradict God's perfect truth. May we be a people who are so effective at this mission that God has given us that we will have a swell of leaders, so much so that we will be forced to multiply and plant more churches for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word transcends culture. It transcends uh, all of our human institutions, that whatever we've decided, we know better than you, God. I ask that you would humble us. Let us, Lord God, submit to your perfect word and its authority. Lord, I just want to say to you very plainly, you know more than me. 
And I'm really glad that's true. I'm glad that I serve a God that's smarter than me and bigger than me and stronger than me and is eternal. I thank you, Lord God, for uh, every single person you're going to send to Love City that's going to, they're going to have that resonating in their heart when they hear that the call of the gospel is to be called to pour yourself out for the preaching of it. Help us to understand that to be associated with Christ is to be associated with sacrifice. That to follow the way of our master is to follow the way of humble servanthood in all things, in every way. Lord God, I, I just ask that, um, I ask that you would make us an absolute factory for leaders. That God, as we continue to preach your word boldly in love and truth, that men would rise up that their spines would be straightened, that their knees would be straightened, that they would stand up, that they would, that they would be bold soldiers for your glorious gospel, and that we would raise them up, teach them and train them, assess them, equip them and send them out, that we can push this gospel as far as possible for as many days as you give us breath to do so. Lord, that's an exciting thought. I am very excited thinking about spending the rest of my life exhausting myself for the purpose of preaching your gospel. I thank you, Lord of God, for your grace and your strength. It's sufficient for us to do this work. I thank you, Lord, for your church. I thank you for your word, Lord God, that gives us not only just supernatural spiritual advice, but also really pragmatic, practical advice. And I just thank you. Um, I thank you for its truth. I thank you that your word is perfect. Lord God, we, uh, we love you so much. We trust you. Help us to obey you and be more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org